0: Welcome, USMLEers. My name is Zuka Zalishvili, and I'm the founder of USMLE. USMLE is an online podcast for the highest yield basic science and clinical knowledge tested on USMLE Step 1 and USMLE Step 2CK. The information discussed in this podcast is intended only for educational purposes. It's not intended to prevent, diagnose or to treat the medical conditions in real clinical practice, nor is it intended to reflect the policy and the guidelines of various health institutions. Simply put, we serve you to butcher your step exams. Please subscribe to our podcast, Facebook, Instagram pages, and the YouTube channels down below in the description of this episode so that we keep you tuned for the news at ZOOS Now, let's start rolling. Today we are continuing our pediatric series and this will be the pediatrics episode part 6. Just like we do in all the episodes about USMLE step Two ck exam, we will discuss the different conditions which are not related to each other. However, we will do our best to discuss each of them in detail. Let's start the part six of pediatrics and the first condition that we are going to discuss now is neonatal polycythemia. Polycythemia, as you know, is the excessive red blood cell concentration Polycythemia can be absolute, it can be relative, depending on whether the red blood cell mass is increased or not. However, this is beyond the scope of our discussion here. What we need to focus on is the definition of the neonatal polycythemia. Generally, the neonate is considered to have polycythemia if his or her hematocrit is more than 65%. In other words, if her or his hemoglobin is somewhere more than 21 to 22 grams per deciliter, this is when we can say that the patient, the neonate, has polycythemia. The reason we have such a high cutoff value for the neonates is that generally the newborns usually have high hematocrit, and this is normal. Because even the vessel, the fetal vessel with the highest oxygen content, and in this case, I mean the umbilical vein, has the saturation value of 80% and the arterial partial pressure of oxygen of 30 millimeters of mercury. And therefore, you can imagine that during all the times while the baby is in the uterus, she or he is exposed to some mild degree of hypoxia, which stimulates uh, production of erythropoietin from the interstitial fibroblasts of the peritubular capillary bed in the uh, fetus, uh, like in the fetal kidney, and then the fetus ends up with high red blood cell concentration. However, if this concentration is more than 65%, that's already abnormal. Let's talk about what causes the neonatal polycythemia. First, any condition that causes intrauterine hypoxia can potentially result in neonatal polycythemia. The examples of such conditions are, let's say, maternal diabetes or hypertension or even smoking. Guys, let me ask you a question. Could you please come up with the explanation of how these conditions result in neonatal polycythemia? I mean, maternal diabetes, hypertension, and maternal smoking. I hope you already have an answer, but if you don't, that's not a problem because we are going to explain it right now. Maternal diabetes and hypertension cause hyaline arteriolosclerosis of the placental vessels. In other words, there is excessive protein deposition around the vessels which narrows down the vascular lumen. Therefore, the fetus gets oxygen deprived because there is insufficient blood flow to the placenta and this will stimulate the erythropoietin production from the fetal kidney, which will then stimulate fetal bone marrow to make more red blood cells. As for smoking, well, we know that uh, cigarettes contain nicotine, and nicotine is vasoconstrictor. Therefore, if smoking results in placental uh, vessel vasoconstriction, then the baby gets oxygen deprived and when she or he is born the patient can patient can end up with neonatal polycythemia additionally conditions like delayed cord clamping or twin-twin transfusion syndrome can result in neonatal polycythemia idea here is that if the baby has delayed cord clamping, it means that there are more RBCs going into the baby and therefore red blood cell concentration will increase. In case of twin-twin transfusion syndrome, well, we won't go into much detail about this condition right now because this is an uh, OBGYN topic, but let me tell you that in twin-twin transfusion syndrome, there is this abnormal placental anastomosis between two twins and the blood... Goes from one twin, which is called donor twin, to another twin called recipient twin. And the twin that receives the RBCs definitely will have increased RBC concentration. It'll be more correct if I say abnormally increased RBC concentration or neonatal polycythemia. And then finally, several genetic and metabolic conditions can also induce neonatal polycythemia. Although we don't know the exact mechanism of how they cause this condition, it's hard to know those diseases which result in neonatal polycythemia. This can be uh, any genetic trisomy, most commonly 13, 18, and trisomy 21. And from the metabolic conditions, thyroid, gland disturbances can result in neonatal polycythemia. And in thyroid gland disturbances, I mean both hypo and hyperthyroidism. Okay, now how do the neonates with polycythemia present? Most commonly, they are asymptomatic. However, if they have symptoms, then we can detect the ruddy skin, on the on the baby so ruddy skin means the red discoloration and it makes sense because excessive rbcs and the iron within those rbcs will make the skin look more red than it usually is at the same time the neonate can experience hypoglycemia and the consequences of hypoglycemia like seizures the jitteriness altered mental status and etc Guys, could you please explain to me how neonatal polycythemia can result in hypoglycemia? Are you saying that those extra RBCs eat all of that glucose in the plasma? If you are, that's totally correct. As we know, the only source of energy for the red blood cells is glucose because... They don't have the mitochondria and they cannot run the fatty acid oxidation. So they rely solely on glucose. When you have more RBCs in the plasma, they need more food. And this is how they steal the glucose from the tissues of the baby. The neonate with neonatal polycythemia can also develop hyperbilirubinemia. And this happens due to excessive turnover of those extra RBCs and production of the indirect bilirubin. Additionally the baby can develop the respiratory distress cyanosis and apnea. And Here is one tricky thing to explain but bear with me and it will become very understandable. At a first glance when we think about the RBCs we Some of us tend to think that the more RBCs the patient has, the greater the oxygen delivery to the patient's tissues. This is true to a certain extent, but then this is no longer right. So what I'm saying here is that if the patient, either baby or an adult or child, has excessive RBCs, then the blood becomes hyperviscous. In other words, it becomes very thick and it moves very sluggishly. And since the flow velocity of the blood decreases due to hyperviscosity, therefore the extra RBCs can actually result in hypoxia or decreased oxygen delivery rather than increased oxygen delivery. And this is why the baby might develop cyanosis and then oxygen deprivation of the peripheral tissues will stimulate the respiratory distress in the baby. Neonate with polycythemia can also present with irritability and jitteriness, and this can be explained by hypoxia to the CNS. And finally, there might be the abdominal distension. Zoosemiliers, could you guys come up with the explanation of why the neonate with polycythemia can have abdominal distension? I really, really hope that you're saying that those extra RBCs go into the liver and spleen, right? And this makes both liver and spleen bigger than normal, and the patient might end up with hepatosplenomegaly, resulting in abdominal distension. Okay, finally, how do we treat the neonatal polycythemia? Well, we want to dilute those RBCs, and the way we can dilute the RBCs is by giving the IV fluids to the baby. At the same time, we most likely need to transfuse the glucose. And this happens because babies with neonatal polycythemia often end up with hypoglycemia. And then the last resort treatment for neonatal polycythemia is partial exchange transfusion. The idea behind this procedure is that we take out some of the blood from the baby, which contains those extra RBCs, and then we infuse the IV fluid in the same amount that we actually drew from the baby. I mean, we we drew, for example, let's say 100 milliliters of blood from the baby, and at the same time, we will infuse 100 milliliter of the IV fluid to the baby. And this is how we will remove those extra RBCs and we will also dilute the remainder of the RBCs. And this was discussion about the neonatal polycythemia. Let's now discuss the neonatal scalp swelling. We are going to talk about three conditions which are very commonly compared and contrasted on the USMLE Step 2 CK exam. These conditions are Caput succedaneum, Subgallial Hemorrhage, and Cephalohematoma. Before we dive deep into explaining each of these conditions, we should recall the anatomy of the scalp. And if you don't know or if you don't remember, let me remind you that there is the useful mnemonic to remember the anatomical layers of the scalp. And this mnemonic is scalp. The word scalp itself can be used as a mnemonic, S stands for skin, C stands for dense connective tissue immediately under the skin, then A is gallia aponeurotica. This is the flat tendon which connects the frontalis and the occipitalis muscles. Immediately under the gallia aponeurotica we have L standing for the loose connective tissue and then we have. P, which is outer periosteum. So this is the scalp. And after the outer periosteum, then we have the skull bone, right? Which consists of the outer table, which is the outermost thick layer. Then we have diploid layer, which is that cancellous, uh, spongy layer. And then we have inner uh, table. And then inner periosteum. Uh, Okay. Now, we should realize where relative to these structures these different scalp swellings are located let's start with caput succedaneum caput succedaneum is the subcutaneous neonatal scalp swelling in other words it is located between the skin and dense connective tissue and gallia aponeurotica. It's above this aponeurosis. Caput sedanium is usually present immediately at birth, and this is just soft tissue swelling mostly by excessive fluid, not by the blood. Overlying skin will be normal. It will not look like a bruise because there's no blood here. And very importantly, caput sussidaneum crosses the suture lines. Now let's step back a little bit and explain what it actually means. As we know, there are several sutures on our skull. Immediately in the middle, we have the sagittal suture. Then in the front, we have coronal suture. And at the back, we have this lambdoid suture. The idea here is that outer periosteum folds itself, like folds back on itself in order to become the inner periosteum. In other words, outer periosteum and inner periosteum are one continuous layer which are folded back on itself at the site of the suture lines. Then the idea is that any scalp swelling, which is above the outer periosteum will cross the suture lines. There is nothing limiting those swellings to cross the suture lines. This is why caput sedanium will definitely cross the suture lines because, can you remind me where it is exactly located? Exactly. It's located between the skin and dense connective tissue and Gallia aponeurotica. Okay. Finally, Caput succedaneum is mostly self-resolving condition, and it, and it will likely resolve in several days. Let's go a little bit deeper in the scalp, and now let's discuss the subgallial hemorrhage. I would like you to think about the name itself for a second, subgallial hemorrhage. The name itself tells us that this hemorrhage or blood loss is immediately under the gallia aponeurotica. So, this hemorrhage is between gallia aponeurotica and loose connective tissue and the outer periosteum. It is immediately above the outer periosteum. And in contrast to succedaneum, which was not a bleeding, subgallial hemorrhage is certainly bleeding. It can present at birth, and usually there is this overlying bruise over the neonatal scalp because this is the blood accumulating in the space of the scalp. Now, let me ask you a question, guys. Will the subgaleal hemorrhage cross the suture lines or not? And the answer is yes. It will cross the suture lines because, again, subgallial hemorrhage, just like caput succedaneum, is above the outer periosteum. And therefore, nothing restricts the subgallial hemorrhage from crossing the suture lines. And just as the caput succedaneum, it, it usually resolves on its own, but there is one very high yield difference. The space between gallia aponeurotica and the outer periosteum is very loose, and it's very roomy. So it can accommodate a lot of blood. And if neonate keeps bleeding into the space, then there is a risk of a very significant blood loss. And this can result in hypotension, hypovolemia. This can also result in indirect hyperbilirubinemia. The reason being that those RBCs accumulated in the scalp will then break down and the hemoglobin moieties will give us the indirect bilirubin. Okay, and finally, let's talk about the third scalp swelling, which is cephalohematoma. Let's start with the location of cephalohematoma. It is located between the outer periosteum and the skull, the skull bone. In other words, it is located immediately under the outer periosteum. Again, cephalohematoma occurs very soon after birth. It's usually firm and non-fluctuant. This is also bleeding, right? So in, in, uh, similarly to subgaleal hemorrhage, cephalohematoma is the process of bleeding. But let me ask you a question. Zoosemiliers, do you think that cephalohematoma will cross the suture lines? I hope that your answer is no. And the reason it does not cross the suture lines is that cephalohematoma is below the outer periosteum. And we already said that outer and inner layers of periosteum are actually one continuous layer which fold back on itself at the place of the sutures. This is how cephalohematoma is restricted from crossing the suture lines. Again, since there is an actual bleeding in case of cephalohematoma, there is the risk of hyperbilirubinemia. And we have already discussed the mechanism of increased bilirubin when we talked about the subgallial hemorrhage. And just like succedaneum, cephalohematoma is usually a self-limiting condition. I hope that these three scalp swellings are now clear for you because they are really high yield and I would like you to know them very well. Okay, let's move on. The next topic, which is neonatal varicella zoster infection. When the neonate or the baby within the first 28 days of life gets the VZV infection, then this infection can be very severe compared to when the children or adults get the VZV infection. What I mean here is that neonates can certainly develop the chickenpox with those classical uh, vesicular eruptions in the different stages of healing. But at the same time, since neonates have the naturally weak cellular immunity, the VZV can disseminate in the other organs. Therefore, neonatal varicella zoster infection can present with systemic involvement like pneumonia, we might also encounter the hepatitis or meningoencephalitis depending on which organ system the VZV spreads to. Now, let me ask you a question. Guys, how do you think we will treat the neonatal varicella zoster infection? Do you remember the drug? That's right. That's right. Get it louder. That's acyclovir. IV acyclovir. Works on VZV, um, and and we can certainly administer a cyclovir to the neonate in this case. At the same time, we should isolate the neonate from the person who has the varicella, so that they don't have the contact with the infected person anymore. And then, very high yield to know. Like what's very high yield to know is that. If neonatal VZV infection occurred within five days before delivery or within two days after delivery, this is when we give VZIG, or varicella zoster immune globulin. So, asymeliers, could you please tell me how VZIG works in in, in case of the neonatal VZV infection? That's right. Just like any other microbe-specific immune globulin, VZIG, or varicella zoster immune globulin, causes neutralization of the VZV. In other words, it blocks the binding of the VZV to its target cells. And this was high-yield, but pretty short discussion about the neonatal VZV infection. Let's move on to nocturnal. Enuresis in children. At first, let's define what enuresis is. Enuresis is bedwetting. However, it's not enough to know that this term means bedwetting, because up until certain age, bedwetting in both girls and boys is normal, because their, their urinary bladder needs to be trained. So we have more specific criteria for the nocturnal enuresis. This is when the child, either boy or girl, is at least five years old, and he or she has the episodes of incontinence, at least two episodes of con- of incontinence per week, that persists for at least three months. This is a very high yield definition, because Sometimes in questions we need to we need to find out whether the bedwetting is normal or abnormal in a specific patient, and the easy way to remember these three numbers is that two plus three is five. So we have two, three, five. Two times per week, three months, five years. Okay, now. Since we already have the definition of aneurysis, we should also add one more thing. Aneurysis in children can be divided into primary and secondary. Guys, do you remember or do you know what the difference is between the primary and secondary forms of aneurysis? That's right. In primary aneurysis, the nighttime incontinence happens in a way that the child has never been dry for at least six months. But in contrast, secondary enuresis happens when the child has been dry for at least six months before, but then she or he got the bed wetting again. Now, what can cause the primary enuresis? since the child has not been dry for at least six months previous to bedwetting, prior to bedwetting, then the cause of primary aneuresis might simply be brain maturation delay. Some children develop a little bit slower than the others and that's perfectly normal. Uh, and and uh, another thing to consider when thinking about the primary enuresis is that these children, often have the positive family history. Sometimes their parent, either father or mother, might say that they themselves had the same problem when they were kids. Now what do we do in case of primary aneurysus? Although primary aneurysus is most commonly caused by brain maturation delay, which is normal, we should still exclude other more dangerous causes of anuresis and in this case i mean the urinary tract infections therefore in any child with either primary or secondary anuresis we should definitely do the urinalysis to exclude the utis and then finally how do we treat the primary anuresis well we already mentioned that primary anuresis is usually benign and reassurance might be sufficient in certain cases. At the same time, we should encourage the parents to introduce certain behavioral modifications to their child's daily schedule. What I mean here is that they should restrict the evening fluids for the child so that he or she doesn't wet the bed. we can also use the star chart therapy, which is, by the way, the first line treatment. The star chart therapy is when we hang the the, the, the board next to the child's bed, and for every dry night, we give the child the star. This behavioral modification is based on the operant conditioning. Specifically, it's based on the concept of positive reinforcement. By giving the star to the child for every dry night that she or he has had, we encourage them to stop wetting their beds. If the star chart therapy doesn't work, then we can introduce the bed wetting alarm. Bed wetting alarm is the, the alarm that is placed under the patient's bed under the sheets. And whenever the child starts wetting the bed, the alarm will ring, the child will wake up, and she or he will go to the bathroom. The bed wetting alarm, in contrast to star chart therapy, is based on the classical conditioning. So we are trying to link the urge of urination to waking up and going to the bathroom. Okay, let's move on to the secondary aneurysis. As we already mentioned, we call the aneurysis secondary when the child has had at least six months of dryness before, but then he or she restarted having the bed wetting. And in case of secondary aneurysis. The underlying cause is usually another medical condition. It might be a UTI, which, as we all know, is characterized by the increased frequency and urgency, and this might be causing the secondary anuresis. Additionally, the child may have undiagnosed diabetes mellitus. And just like all diabetic patients urinate a lot due to osmotic diuresis, this is what will happen to the child at night. Secondary aneurysis can also happen due to the psychological stress. And psychological stress can arise from the relationship strains either at school or in kindergarten or relationship difficulties with the parents. Very commonly, um, what what the question usually describes is that there is some kind of disturbance in the family's life, some kind of uh, some kind of news, and then this will affect the child in a way that he or she develops secondary enuresis. For example, when the child, when the family has the new baby, then the older child might develop the secondary aneurysis. And in this case, this will be the example of the defense mechanism called, I'm so happy if you got this right, called regression. This is when the child tries to behave in a very childish manner to draw more attention to himself or herself. Okay, now how do we evaluate the secondary anuresis? I hope you remember that we said that Regardless of the type of aneurysis, we should certainly do the urinalysis to check for any underlying conditions like UTIs and the diabetes mellitus. Finally, how do we treat the patient with secondary aneurysis? Well, here the treatment focuses on the underlying condition, whether it's UTI, diabetes, psychogenic stressors, and etc. But we should still use the behavioral modifications, just as we use it for the primary aneuresis. And here we go. This was discussion about the nocturnal aneuresis in children. We will now move on to talking about the normal eyes and strabismus. First, before we go any further about this topic, let me ask you a question. Guys, do you know what strabismus means? I hope you're telling me that strabismus is any, literally any misalignment of the eyes. And then one very high yield point to know from the pediatrics is that strabismus, occasional strabismus, is normal up until four months. But if strabismus is constant at any age, it'll be automatically abnormal now we can detect strabismus based on the red reflex and the corneal light reflex guys do you remember what the red reflex is this is when we shine the light in the patient's eye and then the retinal vessels reflect that light and we see the retina in the red color. This is called the red reflex. And then, could you please tell me what the corneal light reflex is? Now, this is the tricky part because some of us think that corneal reflex and corneal light reflex are same, but this is absolutely wrong. Corneal reflex is when we stimulates the cornea and the trigeminal nerve, and we get bilateral eye blinking by the facial nerve. That's corneal reflex. However, when we say corneal light reflex, we mean that when we shine the pin light to the patient's eye, there will be one small white dot immediately in the center of the cornea. And this white dot is the corneal light reflex or light reflection from the cornea. Before we talk about what changes happen to the red reflex and the corneal light reflex in case of strabismus, let me ask you one question, which is related to the red reflex. Sometimes when we perform the evaluation of the eyes, we see the white reflex of the eye, which is also known as leukocoria. Okay, here comes the question. Could you please tell me two neonatal conditions which can result in leukocoria? If you are getting this right, you are golden. What I'm talking here is the retinoblastoma and infantile cataracts. Let me remind you that retinoblastoma is the tumor of the retina and it grows into the eye, so it grows within the eyeball, deep into the vitreous body, and it blocks the it blocks the light from reaching the retina. This is why when we shine the light to the eye with retinoblastoma we will see the white mass behind the pupil which is actually retinoblastoma on the other hand when the neonate has cataracts then opacification of the lens does not allow the light to go through the lens and therefore we will see the red uh, we will see the white reflex due to those opacified lens. Okay, now let's talk about how we can detect strabismus based on the red reflex and corneal light reflex. Let's say that the patient has esotropia. This is when the eye is deviated towards the nose. It's deviated inwards. In any case of strabismus, the red reflex will be more intense in the deviated eye compared to the normal eye. In other words, the red color of the retina will be brighter from the deviated eye compared to the normal eye. And then, as for the corneal light reflexes, they will be asymmetric. Now, what do I mean here? As we already mentioned, In a normal patient with normally aligned eyes, the corneal light reflex should be located exactly in the center of the cornea. And this will definitely happen in the normal eye. However, in deviated eye, the corneal light reflex will not be located in the center of the cornea. Instead, it will be located at the edge of the cornea, depending on the degree of eye deviation so this corneal light reflex will be immediately over the iris not over the pupil now why do we care about the red reflex and corneal light reflex in relation to strabismus there is one condition which is called pseudostrabismus and we should differentiate strabismus from pseudostrabismus now before we do this, let's define the pseudostrabismus. As the name implies, it is false strabismus. It looks like strabismus, but it's not. The idea here is that the baby might have the epicanthal fold in one eye, and that eye might look like the eye with strabismus. However, in reality, the part of the sclera is covered by that epicanthal skin fold. When we shine the light in the eye with pseudostrobismus, then we will have equally responsive red reflex in the eye with pseudostrobismus and the normal eye. And at the same time, corneal light reflexes in these both eyes will be symmetric. So this is how we differentiate pseudostrobismus from strabismus. Okay, so this was discussion about the red reflex, corneal light reflex, and their correlation with strabismus. Let's move on to the osteomyelitis in children. Before we dive deep into this condition, let me tell you one very high-yield concept. I have seen several people confusing osteomyelitis with septic arthritis let's draw the line of difference between these two conditions now as the name implies osteomyelitis is the inflammation of the bone and the bone marrow on the other hand septic arthritis is the inflammation of the joint therefore when the patient Either child or adult has septic arthritis, then it's the joint that's painful. But in case of osteomyelitis, the pain is located in the bone itself. Well, osteomyelitis can definitely present, can definitely coexist with septic arthritis, but the joint pain in that case will still not be explained by the osteomyelitis. So again osteomyelitis infection of the bone and bone marrow while septic arthritis is infection of the joint space now we are talking about the osteomyelitis in children there are many different ways of how the patient can develop osteomyelitis this might be direct inoculation of bacteria through the skin from the trauma And it might also be the hematogenous spread. In children, the most common route of infection is hematogenous spread. And could you please tell me the most common microbe implied in the pediatric osteomyelitis and osteomyelitis in almost all ages? That's right. It's staph aureus. Now, how will the osteomyelitis present. Certainly, the patient will have fever because this is infection causing inflammation. There might also be the irritability and the limited function, which is, by the way, the fifth cardinal sign of acute inflammation, right? It's called functio in in Latin, which means loss of function. For example, if the child has osteomyelitis of the femur, then this child might present with limp, so her or his walking ability will be disrupted. And then, as we already mentioned, osteomyelitis will be accompanied by the bone tenderness and the swelling of the soft tissue around the bone. Let me tell you another very high yield point about osteomyelitis let me give you a case and I will finish that case with a question. Let's say that we have the patient, either child or adult, who presented with cellulitis. We treated cellulitis with anti staph antibiotics and then two months later, this patient presents again with cellulitis in the same location. Okay, we treated him again and then he presents the third time with cellulitis in the same location. Now in that case, what do you guys think is the underlying condition of this patient? I hope you're telling me that this patient may have the underlying osteomyelitis and then although his cellulitis is treated, osteomyelitis stays active in the bone, and then the infection spreads from the bone to the soft tissues again and again and again. This is actually a very high-yield scenario. Now, how do we diagnose osteomyelitis? Well, if we measure ESR and CRP, they will be elevated because we have inflammation. The patient usually will have leukocytosis because, again, osteomyelitis is bacterial infection almost all the times, and then we should also take the blood culture. We should take the blood culture because, as I already told you, the most common route of infection in children is hematogenous dissemination. Therefore, their blood culture might also be positive, and it might help us identify the offending microbe. Now, As for the imaging studies, we can do x-ray and we can also do the MRI. The setback of an x-ray is that in the early stages of osteomyelitis, it's not sensitive enough. In other words, it might not see those anatomical disturbances created by the osteomyelitis. In this case, we will perform MRI. MRI is much more sensitive even in the early stages of osteomyelitis. To to put it in other words, we will be able to see the bone inflammation with MRI. But then the question is, how can we diagnose osteomyelitis definitively? Do you have an answer for this? I hope you do. But if you don't, no problem. Because we're going to say this right now. Definitive diagnosis of osteomyelitis is with bone biopsy in the culture of the bone specimen. Because we are taking the infected tissue itself and we are looking for the microbe there. Okay, now then how do we treat osteomyelitis? Can you tell me this? I hope you're saying that we should administer anti-staphylococcal antibiotic to the patient. And if we have high suspicion for MRSA, then we should give, can you finish the sentence? Vancomycin. That's right. Okay, this was discussion about the osteomyelitis in children. Okay, now we will move on to the pathophysiology of rheumatic fever. In this subsection, we are not going to discuss the clinical features and the treatment of the rheumatic fever. We are just going to review how the rheumatic fever occurs before we do this could you please remind me which microbe i mean the the immune response to which microbe causes rheumatic fever i hope you're telling me that this is an immune response to group a streptococcus or um, yeah so strep pyogenes when strep pyogenes causes strep throat or bacterial pharyngitis, then those rheumatogenic strains of group A strep have something called M protein on their plasma membrane. M protein is very strong antigen which interacts with both B cells and CD4 positive T cells. Therefore, we receive the IgG antibodies against the M protein, which help us to neutralize the group A strep. The the bad thing about those anti-M protein IgG antibodies is that they can also react against the cardiac proteins. The whole concept of this cross-reaction is molecular mimicry guys is this term familiar for you from the step one i hope it is molecular mimicry is when the antigen of the microbe looks like the normal human protein therefore if antibodies are produced against that particular antigen those same antibodies will also react against our own healthy tissues. And this is how we get the immune damage to the different organ systems in rheumatic fever. These anti-M protein IgG antibodies cross-react with the cardiac proteins. And this is how we get one of the major Jones criteria, which is carditis. And let me remind you that carditis is literally carditis. What I mean here is that the patient can either have endocarditis, myo, or pericarditis. Then those antibodies can also cross-react with the antigens in the other organ systems. For example, this is how the rheumatic fever presents with uh, migratory polyarthritis and nodules, and etc. And let me remind you one more thing, and let's move on to the different topic. Could you please please tell me what the pathognomonic finding is on the myocardial biopsy of someone with rheumatic fever? That's right. This is the Ashoff bodies with Anichko cells. Ashoff bodies are the granulomas which form in response to those uh, in, invading antibodies. And then anichko cells are macrophages or epithelioid histiocytes with wavy, wavy caterpillar nucleus. Okay, so this was discussion about the pathophysiology of rheumatic fever. The next topic we're going to discuss is pediatric constipation. It's very high yield to know the risk factors for constipation in children. First, when we introduce the solid food for the first time to the child's diet, this might cause the constipation, because if the child eats the solid food the first time, he or she might not be used to the the, the solid food, and uh, this can result in constipation. At the same time, cow's milk is very commonly implicated as the cause of constipation. Toilet training and school entry can also cause pediatric constipation because the child might be ashamed of going to the bathroom and this might be an embarrassing moment for the child, either doing toilet training or at school. And the child might withhold the stools within himself or herself. And then how does the pediatric constipation present? Well, first, if the child withholds the stool, the water is reabsorbed from those stool masses. And now the, those stool masses become very thick and they become very hard. And, and, it's, and it becomes very difficult to just expulse them during defecation. This will result in more stool withholding. And finally, pediatric constipation can be accompanied by encopresis. Zoosemiliers, do you guys know what the word encopresis means? This is involuntary defecation, usually at night. And the mechanism of how ankle develops in the setting of pediatric constipation is that the soft stool masses formed after, I mean, those soft stool masses will bypass the impacted hard mass and those soft masses will be expulsed usually at night, and this will result in encopresis. Now let's talk about the complications of pediatric constipation. When the child with constipation defecates, that can result in anal fissure. The idea here is that those impacted stool masses become so hard that their expulsion can tear the anal mucosa, especially the posterior anal mucosa, resulting in anal fissures, which is an extremely painful condition, and this can further exacerbate the child's constipation. Pediatric constipation can also be followed by hemorrhoids. right? This will be protrusion of the superficial veins uh, in the anal canal, and this will, this will happen due to increased pressure within the bowels during defecation. In other words, the child might have tenesmus, which is painful, straining during defecation, and this can result in protrusion of those superficial veins. And finally, and very importantly, constipation can also result in aneuryses, And urinary tract infections, especially in girls. The idea here is that bacteria can overgrow in those hard impacted masses, and then those bacteria can exit the anus and they can travel up into the urinary tract, resulting in urinary tract infections and aneurysis. Okay, now finally, how do we treat the patient with? constipation, I mean the child with constipation. First, just like we recommend for all the patients with constipation, we recommend to increase the dietary fiber and the water intake. The idea here is that the fiber, dietary fiber, will work like the bulk forming laxative and this will facilitate expulsion of the stool. The water intake will soften the stool masses and this will further facilitate defecation. We should also limit the cow's milk intake to less than 24 ounces per day. And uh, for those people who are used to calculating the volume in milliliters, 24 ounces is approximately like 700 milliliters, yeah. We can also use the laxatives in children. And finally, we can use the enema to soften those stool masses and facilitate defecation so this was discussion about the pediatric constipation let's move on to the pediatric obstructive sleep apnea in children obstructive sleep apnea is most commonly caused by can you finish the sentence that's cool it's most commonly caused by adenotonsillar hypertrophy the idea here is that the palatine tonsils can hypertrophy to the extent that they can block the oropharynx and the airway, especially at night when our conscious control of the skeletal muscle is decreased and therefore it facilitates collapse of the oropharynx. At the same time, the nasopharyngeal tonsil at the roof of the nasopharynx can hypertrophy to the degree that it can almost completely obstruct the nasopharynx. And this is what we call adenoid. Adenoid is an enlarged nasopharyngeal tonsil. So what happens is that the child is restricted from breathing normally, either through the mouth or through the nose, or both. And then during the night, we will have the classical signs and symptoms of obstructive sleep apnea. First, There will be loud snoring due to obstruction of the airway. And also, we will detect the episodes of apnea or no breathing. Right, So this is when the child will stop breathing for at least 10 seconds. And then the child, just like an adult, will wake up, but not to the complete consciousness, and then go back to sleep. In contrast to adults, the nighttime symptoms of pediatric OSA can be much more severe. In other words, child with obstructive sleep apnea can also develop the enuresis and he can also he or she sorry can also develop the parasomnias like sleep terrors and sleepwalking. There's no specific mechanism of how they develop these conditions. However, it is documented that pediatric OSA can cause those parasomnias and enuresis as well. For the daytime symptoms, first of all, the child tends to have inappropriate naps, and she or he falls asleep very often, often at school. And the idea here is that since child wakes up several times at night, she or he does not have a good restorative sleep, and this is why the child takes several naps or feels very sleepy during the day. In contrast to adults, the daytime symptoms of OSA in children can also be much more severe. In other words, it can affect their mood and and performance in a very serious way. So, the child with OSA might present with symptoms as non-specific as irritability or inattention, learning problems, and etc. And very commonly patients with obstructive sleep apnea breathe with mouth and they have the nasal speech. They breathe with mouth because the mouth provides the bigger uh, provides the airway with a larger diameter so it's easier for them to breathe with mouth rather than through the nose, which is likely obstructed by the adenoid. Okay, now what are the complications of OSA in children? First, this might result in poor growth or failure to thrive. At the same time, because of tiredness, because of mood changes, the child might have the poor school performance. And finally, just like adults, the child can develop the cardiopulmonary complications from the OSA. What I mean here is hypoxic vasoconstriction and concentric right ventricular hypertrophy, which can result in the early onset pulmonali. The OSA, just like in adults, can also cause systemic hypertension in children due to excessive sympathetic drive during the apneic episodes. Now how do we manage pediatric OSA? Do you remember what the most common cause of pediatric OSA was? It was adenotonsillar hypertrophy. So in that case, we do tonsillectomy and adenoidectomy. We we, we remove those masses, so adenoid and the palatine tonsils, to enlarge the airway both oropharynx and the nasopharynx so that the child can breathe normally at night. And this was discussion about the pediatric OSA. Let's move on to the pediatric septic arthritis. Again, before we start this, let's briefly remind ourselves what we already said in this episode. Osteomyelitis and septic arthritis are not the same thing. Osteomyelitis is the infection of the bone and bone marrow, while septic arthritis is the infection of the joint. The causative microbes of septic arthritis in children differs slightly depending on the child's age. If the infant is less than three months old, then the most common Microbes causing septic arthritis in the descending order are staph aureus, group B strep, and the gram-negative rots. In contrast, if the infant is at least three months old, then the most common microbe causing septic arthritis is still staph aureus, but the second most common microbe is group A rather than B streptococcus. As for the clinical features, septic arthritis presents with joint pain, which is usually acute and it's usually monoarticular. In other words, it affects only one joint. And in addition to pain, we will also have the other cardinal signs of inflammation like swelling and um, we will also have warmth and redness and limited motion as well. Limited motion will result in the child refusing to bear weight on the affected extremity. And there will be fever as well, certainly, and usually septic arthritis causes fever at least 38.5 degrees Celsius. How do we diagnose septic arthritis? Well, we should do the CBC, and the CBC will likely show the leukocytosis with possible neutrophilia, because, again, septic arthritis is almost always the bacterial infection. ESR and CRP will be elevated due to generalized inflammatory state, but this is very nonspecific, right? Additionally, we can also obtain the blood culture. Guys, could you please tell me why we should possibly obtain the blood culture in patients with septic arthritis? Absolutely. That's right. Just like for osteomyelitis, septic arthritis in children is most commonly caused by hematogenous spread of bacteria. And if we obtain the blood culture, then we have a chance to catch the microbe and to identify this and then tailor the antibiotic therapy to that specific microbe. At the same time, we should certainly perform the joint aspiration. Let me give you one general rule of thumb. Whenever we have acutely painful joint with swelling, erythema, and warmth, then we should almost always do the arthrocentesis to find out whether it's inflammatory arthritis or infectious arthritis, that is, septic arthritis. And when we aspirate the synovial fluid, then we certainly send the synovial fluid to the lab for the different characteristics. And and one of them is the white blood cell count in the synovial fluid. Septic arthritis is usually characterized by the synovial fluid white blood cell count of more than 50,000. And this is a very high yield concept here. Let me take a step back and talk about the leukocyte count in the synovial fluid. Generally, we have two cutoff values that we should know. This is two thousand, and then fifty thousand. Well, some sources say hundred thousand, but fifty thousand is better to remember. If the patient has joint pain and the synovial fluid fluid, sorry, reveals the leukocyte count of less than two thousand, then we are dealing with Non inflammatory arthritis like osteoarthritis. In contrast, if synovial fluid analysis shows the leukocyte count between 2000 and 50,000, then we are dealing with inflammatory, non infectious arthritis. In this case, we mostly talk about the crystal induced arthritis, right? We talk about the gout and the gout. But then if the synovial fluid leukocyte count is more than 50,000, the most likely diagnosis in that patient is septic arthritis, okay? But I'd like, to, I'd like you to know that crystal-induced arthritis can still present with leukocyte count of more than 50,000. So the leukocyte count alone is not sufficient to differentiate between these two conditions. And then we can also perform ultrasound or MRI on the affected joint, which will show the infectious effusion. How do we treat septic arthritis? Before we talk about this, let me tell you one thing. Septic arthritis is a very serious infection because untreated septic arthritis can be fatal. And if it's not fatal, it can result in permanent joint destruction and the early onset osteoarthritis. And in order to save the joint From early onset osteoarthritis and the other complications, we should perform the joint drainage and the surgical debridement as well as the IV antibiotics. This is infection and certainly we should give the antibiotics and it's better to give it IV because again, septic arthritis is a very serious infection which can readily deteriorate into sepsis or even death. So this was discussion about the pediatric septic arthritis. Let's now talk about the pediatric traumatic brain injury or TBI. It's worth noting that Glasgow Coma Scale is not as helpful in children as in adolescents and adults. And for the and for this reason, we have the different Different, uh, not the algorithm, but the different rules to assess the pediatric traumatic brain injury. And this is called the PCARN rule. In PCARN rules, we identify the high-risk features for the traumatic brain injury, which can result in serious, life-threatening head injuries and these high-risk features differ depending on the age of the patient. Let's start with the children at less than two years of age. In this age group, the high-risk features include the altered mental status, which in children can be detected as the fuzzy behavior. Loss of consciousness is certainly the high-risk feature. Additionally, if the mechanism of injury severe, let's say fall from 0.9 meters or if this is a high-impact crush or motor vehicle accident, this is also the high-risk feature. If the patient has non-frontal scalp hematoma, then we should suspect the serious head injury. And finally, if there is palpable skull fracture in the child of less than two years old, this is also the high-risk feature for the traumatic brain injury. Let's now discuss the high-risk features of the TBI in children from 2 to 18 years old. In that case, again, altered mental status manifesting as somnolence and agitation is the high-risk feature. Loss of consciousness and severe mechanisms of injury like fall from 1.5 meters or high-impact crush or motor vehicle accident are all high-risk features. And the signs of increased intracranial pressure like vomiting and severe headache will be considered the high-risk features. And finally, if we have the signs of the basilar skull fracture like CSF rhinorrhea, CSF otorrhea, raccoon eyes, battle sign, all of these will be considered as the high-risk features. Let me remind you that raccoon eyes is called the bleeding, the, the periorbital bruises, which is commonly seen in basilar skull fracture. And the battle sign is the bruise over the mastoid processes. This is another sign of the basilar skull fracture. Now, why do we care about these high-risk features in children? The idea is to risk stratify these kids and to decide who deserves the non-contrast head CT. If the child has traumatic brain injury without any of the high-risk features, then the traumatic brain injury is likely very mild and therefore we don't necessarily have to do the non-contrast head CT in such patient. However, if the patient exhibits at least one high-risk feature, this is already sufficient to consider the patient for the non-contrast head CT. And we specifically perform the non-contrast head CT scan to exclude the hemorrhage. Otherwise, contrast and blood both look white on the CT scan and contrast CT would not be able to differentiate between the contrast and the blood. Okay, so this was discussion about the pediatric traumatic brain injury and the PCARN rules. The last topic that we'll discuss in this episode is perianal dermatosis. There are three conditions that can cause perianal dermatosis. This is contact dermatitis, candida dermatitis, and then perianal streptococcal infection. It's very important to compare and contrast each of these three conditions so that we can recognize them in the question stems. Let's start with the contact dermatitis. Contact dermatitis is the most common cause of perianal dermatosis in infants. And this is usually caused by the contact of the skin with the diaper. Very high yield thing to know about contact dermatitis is that Perianal contact dermatitis spares the creases and skin folds. When we uncover the diaper of the baby, we will see that there will be red skin. However, skin folds will be spared. Since contact dermatitis is not an infection, but rather the type 4 hypersensitivity reaction here we need just symptomatic treatment with topical ointments mostly okay let's move on to candida dermatitis candida dermatitis is the second most common cause of perianal dermatosis in infants in other words candida dermatitis is um, i mean the first most common cause is contact dermatitis and the second most common cause is candida dermatitis When we examine the child physically, then we will see that child will have this beefy red rash, which will involve the skin folds and there will be the satellite lesions. What this means is that the skin folds will also be red and also we will have the small red plaques around the larger plaques. And the way we treat the candida dermatitis is with topical antifungal therapy like topical nystatin or we can use topical myconazole, clotrimazole and etc. Finally, let's talk about the perianal group A streptococcal infection. Perianal streptococcal infection is common in school-aged kids rather than infants. And in terms of the appearance... Perianal streptococcal infection looks very much like the erysipelas. In se- like similar to erythi- erysipelas, here we also have this bright, very sharply demarcated redness over the perianal skin. There might also be some fissures associated with the erythema. And since perianal streptococcal infection is the bacterial infection, we need the oral antibiotics like penicillin or amoxicillin, so antibiotics that cover group A streptococcus. Okay, so we have come to an end of our today's episode, and let's summarize everything that we have discussed today. We have discussed multiple different topics across the pediatrics. The main take-home message for practically all of these topics is to know how to diagnose and how to treat them. You can leave the voice message on this episode to let us know how we can improve our podcast for you. So thank you for your kind attention, Zeus Ameliers, and see you on the next episode.